The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to episode three of the Hennessy Report. I'm Dave Hennessy. In this episode, we have Russ Campanello, the EVP of HR and Corporate Communications from iRobot. Great discussion with Russ, and um, he made news early in his career. He talks and shares that story, and it's incredible. It was really what he did is really a sea change, not just in the HR field. Quite a powerful story. So that that's right in the early part of the podcast within the first couple of minutes. So make sure you catch that. And later in the podcast, Russ looks back with some humility on things he would have done differently starting off in his career. And I thought that was interesting and good of him to share. Plus, he offers a lot of wisdom and advice to the HR function and others in the field. He's just a great interview here. So enjoy it. Also, we caught a little serendipity. Russ is the first winner of the Gaddy HR Leadership Excellent Award at HRLF. He just received this week. So that was good timing. You know, that award goes to, in, you know, recognition of and the legacy of Bob Gaddy, which uh, I learned a little bit more about when Mike Fitzgerald uh, received the Gaddy Mentor Award down at Nero last month. Really have a better appreciation of what Bob meant to all the people that he touched in this community. And, and Mike, Mike shared that story very well and how much time Bob gave to people in the community. I think um, it's great that the two largest HR organizations around here have decided to help uh, Bob's name and reputation and legacy live on through two awards that they're giving out. So congratulations to Russ and Mike. And before we get to Russ, a little bit about our next podcast. We have Andy Porter on episode four. He's the chief people officer at the Broad Institute and very inventive and progressive HR leader. So you'll be hearing him in a couple of weeks as well. So look forward to that one. And I bring you Russ Campanello. Hello, Russ. Thank you for joining the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, thanks, Dave. It's, del- it's really delightful to be here. Here we are at the iRobot headquarters, but you did not start your career here. Um, I know a little bit about it, but I think for our listeners, it'd be good to know, did you pursue HR? What were your first steps um, in your career? Just a little bit about the background oh, okay. before we get into some of the HR topics in iRobot. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long story. I'll keep it, uh, I'll keep it calm. Well, there's some things I'm going to poke on. Yeah, so okay. Just so yeah, you know. That, that's fine. So um, um, I actually graduated uh, from one of the University of Massachusetts schools uh, with a bachelor's degree in uh, business management, but a concentration in human resources. Uh, at, at Amherst? At uh, Lowell. At Lowell, right Lowell, here. Okay. Yeah. So I, I graduated from UMass Lowell with a degree in management and a, and a focus in uh, human resources, which at the time was still called personnel or industrial relations at the time. And uh, so it felt very avant-garde to come out with a concentration in a, in a role that not, uh, not the, the world didn't see that way. Uh, it, right. Not many people were majoring in HR at that time. No. And it, or, it, or focusing on it. it, in it a, educational life, right? And for me, it was really, uh, yeah, I started engineering. Not that it was that long ago. No, not that it was that long ago. Uh, I started engineering, uh, went all the way to psychology, and then settled back in business management. And the the, the thing that attracted me to the human resources uh, concentration was the it seemed that the equation to solve for uh, employee satisfaction and culture and uh, engagement in organizations was a far more intriguing calculation than 
marketing or finance. And mm. so it seemed that it would be, uh, for me, uh, it would satisfy my curiosity and my problem solving uh, interest uh, in a different way than those other disciplines uh, uh, would have allowed for. At least that's, that's how I thought about it at the time. It's, I still I still feel that way now. So I, I, I came out with a human resources orientation. My first job was a, uh, I was a recruiter for a placement agency, which I did uh, for three years. I tell people that I, when my moral development caught up with my intellect, I decided that I was wanted to, if I was really going to do good HR work, I needed to do it in-house. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to work uh, for a company uh, that, that doesn't exist anymore, Wang Laboratories, that uh, made was the one of the early uh, mini computer companies like, like digital equipment. Um, and, stayed, and it might be some parallels with iRobot changing their focus on products with Wang not changing their focus on products. Well, I don't know if you want to talk I, about that now or later. but we could, we could, That'd be an interesting yeah, yeah. Uh, concept to plumb. I think the um, uh, I was actually with uh, Wang when it transi- transitioned itself from uh, word processors uh, to uh, mini computers. Mm-hmm. I, I was also, I happened to be, how I got there, I'm not quite sure. I happened to be in the room when uh, senior management made the decision that they weren't going to port their... Uh, acclaimed word processing software to the PC, that they were not going to sell word processing software for the PC, Mm -hmm. as it had just come out from IBM and a couple of players, Mm -hmm. because they thought of them as toys. Ah. And so... so I, I it was, was below them. It was it, it was not their strategy. And right. I was I, I remember thinking about it that because I, I had just heard about this other company coming out. It was building a spreadsheet for PCs called Lotus, and uh, I thought, wow, it seems like if if the market is moving towards desktop computing or PC computing, that capturing that as it happened would have been a good idea, but. It didn't happen. I, I, uh, I just saw my little piece of history. It was soon after that uh, uh, they they began their long decline. A very sad story. Many wonderful people came out of Wang Laboratories. Um, uh, and I moved uh, right about that time, right after the uh, first couple of layoffs in 1986, I believe it was, I moved to uh, Lotus mm-hmm. Software, Lotus Development Corporation. In the HR function. And the HR. Was, had, uh, they hired me to run HR. Uh, for That's really young in your career, right? Um, to get the head of HR job. It was, I didn't finish the sentence. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I, they hired me to, uh, to head HR for the sales division. Okay. Uh, they had turned through uh, six HR people in two years, and they thought they'd try this guy and see what he could do. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and that I had a, I had a, a very successful role with the sales team. When the top job came open, I was a candidate that I uh, did a search for nine months. I was interim leader for nine months. I for the whole organization. For the whole organization right, at that right. point. And uh, uh, they, they couldn't find someone or, uh, <laughs> or, or relented to my, act, my active uh, inquiry about getting the job. And uh, they, they appointed me, uh, actually, uh, it will be uh, 30 years ago in March. Uh, I got my first uh, HR leadership job at, at uh, Lotus Development Corporation. Yeah. Stayed with them for 10 years through the acquisition at IBM. Mm-hmm. Um, IBM wanted to go in a different direction 
with HR and that you know, I wasn't in part of that direction, so they let me go. Before we go on to that, yeah. can I can I ask you about uh, Lotus? Because sure. you made some news at Lotus. Uh, you were on the Today Show. Um, you actually got involved with, I forgot her name, Mary... Oh, um, Gentile. Mary Gentile, yeah. yeah um, so with Harvard Business Yeah, so we case, one, so. Of the, one of the uh, prouder pieces of work I ever did was um, uh, in 1992, I wrote, um, sorry, Lotus uh, decided they were going to provide uh, uh, departments of our gay and lesbian employees uh, benefits equivalent to uh, the spouses of their heterosexual employees. Um, and what simply seemed like the right thing to do and and you know fairness from a compensation standpoint to uh, at the time about 10 percent of our workforce turned into uh, quite a, a um, story and uh, and I'd like to be I'd like to think that you know we added momentum uh, we were the first publicly traded company to do this added momentum to uh, a trend of, of recognizing the, the spouses of of gay and lesbian uh, people in the world, uh, and certainly a, a good place to do that was was business, and uh, that got me on the Today Show. Uh, that Harvard there's a Harvard Business School case on this um, on this decision and and how we made it and the, and the implications of it remains one of the prouder pieces of work I've ever done, not because I did it, uh, but because it was. It was simply one of those things you're confronted with as an HR person and kind of intrinsic unfairness of that became clear. We just decided to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't just me who did it. It was uh, had a great comp and benefits guy at the time who figured out a way to get our insurance companies to participate. And uh, there was a gay and lesbian uh, community in Robot that helped me understand. At Lotus, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I keep doing that. At Lotus, uh, that helped me understand, you know, the inherent unfairness of it. I, mm-hmm. uh, I tell the story in the business case um, that I uh, I was in the midst of a divorce at the time, and uh, I'd been married for five years and was getting a divorce. And the woman, uh, Margie Blightman, uh, was three three incredibly uh, smart, capable, kind, thoughtful women who kind of brought the case to me. Margie Blightman. Polly Laurel Child and Andy Canavan. Uh, Margie uh, had been married for, uh, had been with her partner. They, she, she couldn't obviously be legally married at that time uh, for, I think she'd been, they'd been together 15, almost 20 years. And I remember thinking, I had a marriage that failed in, in five, and I'm, I represent the model of what society expects. And here was this committed couple for 15 years or more. Living, you know, uh, a lot, living their life uh, successfully, despite all the social uh, challenges a, a, a lesbian couple would face at the time. Thankfully, that's progressed. But it, what that helped, you know, that helped me understand the, the inherent unfairness that existed uh, for the community. And there was lots of reasons why the world was worked up about it. Uh, it was still in the midst of the AIDS crisis. Um, wasn't quite the dialogue in the world that currently exists on gay. That, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I think somebody that's, you know, some of our listeners that are younger might not really remember or know what it was like, the environment, the pressure that you were getting, or 
or maybe some feedback that was not so positive. You got on the Today Show, there was a Harvard Business School case about you, but that was not, it was not all like that. You got some negative. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I had all that surgically removed. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, no, it was, it was, uh, it, it, I uh, received a tremendous amount of mail, um, most of it negative. Most of it. Uh, well, it, 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 there was a lot of, I remember all the positives, uh, but I do remember receiving Bibles and Bible verses. Uh, there were uh, religious groups that boycotted our products. Um, I uh, received, uh, to be described as threats at, at home and at work mm. uh, for uh, corrupting what the Bible said was uh, corrupting the Bible's view of uh homosexual uh, relationships uh, so it wasn't it, it wasn't without its controversy for sure it, mm. it, uh, it we, we were also you know told that uh, we were you know uh, aiding the spread of AIDS and it was a it was not a particularly uh, proud moment in our, our society's history as it related to tolerance um, and not really that long ago we're talking 25 26 nine, 25 nine, years 1992 ago. right yep, it was 1992 um, yeah, no, I, I, it wasn't that long ago. I think uh, the world has, has gone, has come a long way since then. I, I, I'd like to believe that that work that Lotus did on the, on those benefits contributed to the momentum uh, that results in our that in my friends, uh, gay, lesbian, or heterosexual, being able to have their marriages recognized, and uh, and and to the to the, to the visibility the dialogue that exists in society now uh, mm -hmm. about the, the, the importance of fairness with this with this community of our neighbors so it was a it was a, a remarkable piece of work I hadn't thought about the negative side to you asked the question but it was a, a uh, and I, I'm, I'm sure I kept some of the uh, Bible verses uh, uh, there was, there was, they, they referenced one particular Bible verse I got it I got it about a hundred times mm -hmm. uh, sometimes with a Bible uh, with people uh, praying for my soul. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, what's amazing is how did you have the courage pretty early in your career to do that, and how did the organization have the courage to do that? There must have been quite a leadership team that you had that supported you because it would have been easier to give it up yeah, along the way. There I was a, there you was get a lot of that negative. There was a, there was a meeting at thirty thousand feet in an airplane on the way back from an event with me and this. And I think the then CFO, or the, uh, and uh, the head of the head of uh, uh, comp and benefits, um, you know, we had our insurance group uh, was ready to walk away from the business uh, if we decided to go ahead and do this. Wow! And uh, so, and you're a lot much larger company than when you joined it at this point, right? Because you had joined a little bit before. I had joined the company was about a thousand. We were a couple, we were probably a couple thousand lives at that point, maybe, right? Maybe three thousand. And they were willing to walk away. The reinsurer was willing to walk away. It was, um, you know, and so we caucused at the back of a plane on a couple of items that came up. The head of uh, comp and benefits described what his reactions were from the, the insurers. The CFO looked at me, and the, my, my head of comp, Keith, looked at me, and he says, well, he says, what do you want to do? And I remember it vividly because it was like it felt like a, you know, there are a million moments in our lives, people listening uh, to this, and, uh, and certainly for me at that moment, where a, a decision, you could, that the, uh, the direction pivots on your, on your, your resolve at that moment. Mm. 
And uh, I remember looking at him and I said, there are other insurance companies. Let's go find another insurance company. Wow. And um, in the end, uh, when they realized we were serious, they didn't walk away from the business. And they used us as a model for, and began promoting the fact <laughs> that <laughs> they could help other their client companies uh, offer benefits to their gay and lesbian employees. So it became a sales uh, uh, development for them. But it was it was clearly that moment, you know, where we all are confronted. Where you were stuck between policy and, and fairness, or stuck mm. between what we've done in the past for what's right in the moment, mm. where we have to make a call. And I, I remember at that point, I, I don't know, uh, you asked, you know, where did the courage come from? I'm not entirely sure. It was courage at that moment. But uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was uh, you know, I knew the CEO and I uh, were aligned on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew we had 10% of our employee base. Some of the most gifted developers we had in the company mm-hmm. were part of the community. The company had, had a, taken a very visible position in the fight against AIDS. And it it felt uh, incongruent to me that we w- we wouldn't take a leadership position on this. So that's that's that. So that's 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 how it ended up. I feel like saying congratulations twenty five years later. <laughs> I, mean, I never really heard the whole story. Yeah, so it's, it was that's uh, a great it was, achievement. It was a quite it was quite a, it was quite uh, it was quite a moment, quite a story. Uh, and I think the the world learned, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, uh, uh, the world learned <clears throat> as a result of our experience that this wasn't a frightful or scary thing to do, but this, it was prudent, it was fair, uh, it didn't drive costs, uh, in fact, it, it retained talent. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I... Attracted talent. I, I, talent yeah, was, I right, mean, yeah. We, we had an advantage for a period of time on a community of talent that uh, was, was looking to be recognized, that uh, we took advantage of, uh, in the sense that the, we, we had a differentiated position with them. So. It is. It, it fits in the. It fits for us. It fits for us at the time. It's helped guide my thinking as I progress in my career. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. Where, where has it come up? Have situations like this come up again in your career where you've been able to lean on that experience? Uh, I think. I think where it, it most comes up is the idea uh, that everybody faces in the profession is you know our accounting practice. To, our accounting practices still look at buildings as assets mm. and employees as expenses. And that sort of drives the gestalt and business thinking about the value of human capital. Mm. Uh, Some people don't even like that word because so, it leans on what you were just saying. Yeah, no, I completely get it. I think if you misrepresent capital, which means the most important thing, right? So there are all kinds of capital. Yeah. Is, Human capital, there's social capital, there's um, financial capital, there's uh, emotional capital. There's lots of different capitals. But if you think about uh, it from our context in terms of talent, that even though it's an expense, it's uh, it is the it is the generative aspect of our asset portfolio, right? Not that we count them as assets. Mm. And uh, where we are confronted. Uh, all the time, we're trying to attract and retain the best talent from all the communities in which we recruit for. The idea of creating a differentiated strategy to to attract a particular community, whether that community now be women or people of color or gay, uh, the gay, lesbian, uh, the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ community, 
that it's important that your policies serve as a uh, at the beginning of the conversation, not always the end of the conversation. And that we look at things. Uh, for me, you know, this experience, that early experience, kind of defining for me is being willing to take a stand for a position that might be different, uh, uh, like the the establishment of affinity groups inside of the company. Right? Well, why would you do that? Well, because communities need a place to come to understand if their experiences are unique to the individual or, or, or common amongst the group. That insight helps organizations position themselves better for those communities of folks. Uh, and to be able to take that those lessons and to talk about them as a, you know, our talent strategy says that we'll be a destination for every community in which we recruit which means that we have to be a, a distinguished employer for every community in which we recruit. Sometimes that's college interns versus, uh, you know, kind of more mature professionals. Uh, but often it's a discussion between people of color, uh, majority, uh, women, men, uh, LGBTQ communities, straight communities. That there are differences. Mm. And it's not that the insight from that experience also helped me understand that you're not making, when you make a company better for one of those communities, you're not just making it better for that community, you're making it better for everybody. And that it's, that it's important from a strategic standpoint that you fine tune your environment to be that type of destination, if that's what your company aspires to be, uh, and to be able to be willing to take a stand, uh, to make an argument, or, or, or have a position as it relates to those uh, to those needs. So you've had to make a culture shift here, yes. Russ, because you went from uh, more military products to more uh, consumer products. And I imagine the talent needs were dramatically different to make yeah. that, that shift. So we, we've at the, so that's the most obvious shift, right? Mm. Uh, we made an earlier shift when I joined. The company had two businesses of about equal size, one in the military, one in the consumer. Consumer, and both, oh, they were they were fifty fifty when you joined. Yeah, when I joined, they were about they were about yeah. even, um, and they had uh, each had a unique culture. And then there was a third company, uh, third culture, the headquarters culture. And so, I, as I was joining, they delivered to my house the results of the survey, the engagement survey they had just run. And I was reading it at home before I'd accepted the job, and I said, "Wow, this reads like there's really three different companies." <laughs> so, uh, which it turns out there was. Uh, processes and talent standards and the like. So we brought the we, so we went from three companies to one company, uh, which is a good thing that we did because when the defense business, uh, as we were bringing home the troops from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, they brought the robots back with them, and um, and since there wasn't they weren't uh, there was a need to replace them or that we weren't expanding our our presence in those countries, there wasn't the demand so the, the business started to fall away um, and what in some ways what helped that business survive was the fact that we had come together and made like a common engineering team and a common operations groups and so while we were able to absorb some of the losses of that uh, the fact that the defense business was going uh, in a negative direction uh, because of the structure we, we ultimately ended up having to lay off a, a, a large number of team. I think we ended up probably laying off 200 people uh, between the, you know 2011 and 2013. 
until we've we reached a kind of a, a level funding where the defense business could kind of operate. Uh, Is it still neutral? In existence at all? Yeah, well, yeah, we, no, they. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a great business. It's not a big business. Mm-hmm. Um, they we the management uh, they did a management buyout. They found a private equity partner and decided to spin the company out. Uh, company I remember decided to spin the company out and. Uh, we completed that transaction in uh, April of 2016, um, and launched the consumer brand of our robot in uh, July of 2016. And our the transition you were referring to has you know started once we had identified the acquire the um, the strategy for uh, spinning out the defense business. We also same time spun out our our commercial business, our Ava Robotics business, to a company called Ava Robotics, um, to focus solely on the on the consumer business. Um, we, you know, it's been a complete examination of our mission, vision, values. You know how we're organized. Uh, we've had to, re, you know, uh, restaff the company with consumer talent, value generator. Uh, there's the value generated for the robot is increasingly driven by software. So we've had the, we, uh, and certainly having your, you mean it's less and less, uh, manufacturing. It's more and more about software. Yeah. Now it's, it's well, a software the, company. the behaviors consumers love and the functionality of the robot exhibit are all software driven mm-hmm. for us. Right. And the, you know, now that you can look at your robots, uh, Activity on the, on your phone. You can start and stop it. You can look at its last few missions. You can see how much dirt is picked up. You can uh, you can now see a map of your home on your phone, um, all, which are all value propositions leading to enhanced, uh, leading to more value for our consumer, uh, which is all software driven. We've had to you know kind of restack when I when we started the journey and. Consumer, we had about a software engineer for every ten engineers. Now we have four software engineers for every ten engineers. Okay, and so we're really evened out that. But in doing so, that you know, like we've had to change the culture. We've had to, you know, uh, you know, a consumer cadence is very different than a military cadence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, op, you know, we're making, you know, tens of thousands of robots a month uh, in the military business you might make 10 uh, so we our, our whole business cadence has changed our you know and the and the, the good news here is that the the market loves our story we've had uh, we've had our growth has accelerated our having almost yeah there's some good news recently yeah right? Record quarters. Here. 40% growth, is that what I heard? Uh, in, in North America for the last quarter, uh, there's 40% growth. We think that'll smooth out to the 30s for the year. Globally, we think that'll be we at least high teens. It could be higher. Um, uh, we, you know, we enjoy 80% market share in the U.S., but average is 60 around the world. And, and our penetration in households is increasing. You know, we've had a lot of success, and there's probably only seven percent of the of the households have been have a, have a, a robot in their home. You know, we think the, potential, we right? think the market potential is enormous. And so, you know, about robotics. Yeah. What, what 
with robotics, you know, Amazon Robotics is local. It is your organization, many others, and things are becoming more and more automated. What's going to be the human capital influence of so many things becoming automated? Are there going to be what are the jobs for the for the future employees? What are how is it going to change here at your organization? You know, like so. What are we, what are we all going to be doing? Or is it just a buggy whip thing, and we'll reinvent something? New? Yeah, I think you know, I, every wave of technology brings with it. Uh, uh, a talent question and uh, a, a concern, right? Every, every you know, every wave has something that you know. When automobiles showed up, you know, literally drivers, you know, horse and buggy drivers were you know at risk. Uh, without acknowledging the need for manufacturing jobs and uh, generate you know uh, more and more cars engineering, I think for robotics, I think we're at the, I think we're early. Th- we're very early days in robotics. Uh, iRobot's been around ironically for 27 years, but if you talk to Colin or any of the execs here, they'll tell you it's still it's still very early days. Seven percent household penetration for a consumer robot is for one task, right? Vacuuming uh, feels like it's 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 very early days. And I think what's going to happen is uh, one example. So when iRobot moved to Burlington, uh, I think it was 14 years ago. Uh, we were the only robot business, probably Massachusetts, uh, or certainly within 20 to 25 miles. Uh, now, there's probably about 100 companies that are robotic companies within 25-mile radius of where we are now. Many of them are founded by uh, ex-iRobot alum, uh, which is great. Uh, so I think there's been a... Tr- and. Uh, venture capital has followed, right? So there's a lot of money pouring into the robotic space, um, and that we see that trend continuing. Uh, there, as much as we all hope that, uh, like the Jetsons, there would be a Rosie that was a multifunction robot, uh, we think the future is a series of task function robots that work in harmony uh, uh, around the around uh, home ownership. Uh, so, you know, whether that's you know vacuuming, mopping. Window cleaning, lawn mowing, pool cleaning. Uh, we think the home uh, will have a series of robots that operate uh, in, in concert to maintain the home uh, when the homeowners are away or when the homeowners need the assistance. Um, and we think we, you know, that, so the example of there being all these new robot companies nearby. There's been a tremendous amount of job growth. And, and I imagine a war for talent in a robotics. Huge, a huge war for talent. Uh, and uh, I've just read, just to interrupt, yep. Time Magazine yesterday yep. said that Carnegie Mellon has a computer vision, yep. you know, driverless cars yep. program. They're coming out as graduates getting $200,000 base pays. You don't seem shocked by that, but you're not. For those no, that no, can't see, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. I, I, we we are we have been in competition uh, for those candidates. Um, 180k with uh, $300,000 uh, stock grants for PhDs, no experience, and probably. So we should be sending our kids to computer vision if, robotics. If you have an program. option, if you, if you if you can influence your child. Into any kind of algorithmic development, whether it's navigation, uh, computer learning, uh, uh, vision systems, uh, send them. Uh, but you know, the, I, I think I, I don't have the data in front of me. But when I looked at it last year, there were fewer of these folks in the market than there are professional football players. 
And so, wow. So the laws of supply and demand are going to drive it, right? And right. It, it, it was that way. And at Lotus, when there was, when we were converting mathematicians and music majors into software engineers, the, the economics attract the talent, and eventually it evens out. The other thing that's become true is the speed of development, right, and the speed of getting innovation into the marketplace. Is that's the that's really the, that's why there's a war for talent, right? And so, uh, and so, but the war is not uh, won or lost on your offer. It's won or lost on the environment you create uh, and what and what you expose your candidates to as part of the process. The Candidate market is so much more sophisticated now than it was even two or three years ago. Because of technology, they have because a lot of more information they ton, before they even ton of information before and, you even talk to them. And they, they, to, you know, the talent that's in that kind of demand knows that they're in the, they're in their, they're kind of in the driver's seat, mm-hmm. and they're selecting for things that are important to them. Organizations have always kind of selected for what's important to the organization, mm-hmm. as a, as opposed to selling what's in the interest of the candidate. And what I think is terrific, and again, another uh, kind of an opportunity for innovation is this, is in the talent acquisition space, uh, and just the tremendous work that's been done in the profession around talent acquisition. Uh, no wonder it's more and more heavily weighted with uh, marketing expertise, right? Because we have begun to take our corporate brands to employment brands and begun to express our branding in everything that we do. We at iRobot uh, surveyed the candidate, every candidate that comes in for an interview. Even the on their experience. That, on their experience. Whether they're hired or not. They're hired yeah. up. And what's the goal? The goal is to obviously improve our candidate experience, but it's also to make sure our, our, our benchmark is even if they don't get the job at iRobot, they, they're still an advocate for our brand. That then when they go into Best Buy or Bed Bath and Beyond, and they look at iRobot right, product, right? That they're still going to buy iRobot, right? Or they might work here at a later date. Or they work here for another candidate. All those things. It's a chain reaction. How has technology shifting gears a little bit changed the HR function? Uh, I think it's. I think it's. I think it's moved us out of the, administra- the administrative burden. Uh, it's made us publishers. Not hey, Tracy Burns said something similar when I yeah. interviewed her on the first podcast. Yeah, no, I, I, I think Tracy and I are similar vintage. I think we, we saw the profession grow up with 60 or 70% of its work being administrative and, you know, being, uh, our, our success was gated on, you know, the accuracy of our data. And it still is, but I think we've been relieved of the, the transactional burden of the business and, mm. and freed up our, our ability to focus on the delivery of programs or the delivery of support or the strategy that aligns with what the company's trying to achieve. We've been much more able to focus on what's the talent strategy that enables the business strategy, um, which has improved our delivery capability. And the technology is at a point where it's tunable uh, to our the, the delivery need. And so it can morph more easily uh, as, as the business strategy needs to morph. So I, I think that's been the biggest. I also think the the, you know, the technologies and enabled new innovations, you know, um, everybody talks about the Laszlo Bach's uh, uh, work at Google. I mean, I, he, I think in, at the end of the day, 
he will be the Billy Bean of HR, you know, the guy who right. uh, brought Moneyball, right? Yeah, Moneyball to the HR profession. Um, you know, what he's been, what he's been able to do is kind of quantitatively assess attributes of management that make sense. That there's much, much more technology has enabled the generation of much more data. The data has been able to be configured in ways that we didn't have access to before. We knew at Nervewire, what educational experience, uh, job assignments, and managers contributed to our top uh, performing consultants. Because we were able to look at data across all the different stacks of uh, HR data that we, we, just, we just didn't collect before, or didn't have access to. Right. So I think it's, it's, it's freed us from the administrative tasks, it, and it's enabled uh, new innovation. And you outsource more things to suppliers to, right? There's more benefit providers that you have to do, you have to do a lot of that work. Correct. Payroll and all Payroll. those things are uh, now done by third parties right. often. Yeah, you, again, you're, uh, once you have the data on a particular process or capability, you can make a determination relative to your strategy about whether that should be insourced or outsourced. Right. When I joined iRobot, the, uh, we had an outsourced uh, RPO that did all our recruiting, um, which made sense for where the company was at the time. When our strategy moved to a consumer branding strategy, it was clear that we had to bring that capability in-house so that we could sell our own story and our own brand. Uh, and we were able to do it because the, the, the provider, the RPO, was able to give us the data about how it, we, they worked and how uh, the processes that were executed and what worked and what didn't work. And we could easily convert that to an in-house and then elevate it for what we wanted to happen. We'll come to the uh, part of the podcast where we ask the Northeast Human Resources Association question of the podcast, the NERA question. Of Good. The podcast. Uh, so, yeah, this is I've been waiting. Yeah, <laughs> um, what things would you recommend to young professionals looking to move into HR, move up in HR, somebody um, trying to make a name for themselves in this function? And while you're thinking about that yeah. question, and this is a similar type, a similar way to get at it. Yep. And in fact, I got this question from Beth Grouse, which she answered. <laughs> um, if you could write a letter, 30-year-old self, giving yourself advice about your career, what would it be? Another way, <laughs> another way to get at that or, same I content. Would, I would answer those two things differently. All right, you can do, you can do that. You can, you can be two answers if oh you want. Oh, my God. Uh, so, um, so what, what, would I, what would I tell you, professional? I, I, I'd say that you've... Uh, You've, you've joined a profession at, uh, a, 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 at a time uh, when you can decidedly leave your mark on the profession. That, it, it, uh, that, you, should look at it as an, that you should look at it as an opportunity, not just to have a great career, but to, but to actually have an influence on the direction of the profession. Things to pay attention to while you join the profession for reasons that probably had something to do with the work of HR. Uh, understand the understand the work of the company that you're involved in. That the translation that the best HR the best HR people I know know how to make how to connect their HR activities and HR programs to helping the organization succeed in what in their business strategy. That there's that you don't do something because you read about it and it looked like the right thing to do or the cool thing to do. Make a case for it working within the context of the business and how it helps the company execute its strategy. So understand the business that you're working in. Uh, know your domain, I'd say, is the second thing. 
profession has lots of lots of areas to it. Um, just because you have a benefits department doesn't mean you shouldn't know the benefits. If you're a generalist, if you're a generalist, you should you you should you should be able to know. Uh, you should be able to talk to your your customers about the vesting schedule for the four hundred one k matches or uh, what the you know what the plan deductibles are and your PPO or your uh, consumer driven health plan and why one is better than the other. It's important to understand the whole aspect of the profession and the, the whole aspect of the business. It doesn't allow you, you're not going to be playing in it all the time, but it's, it's important from your own competency and your own ability to stand up in front of your customer. Your customer doesn't really care how you, HR is organized. They care that the person in front of them is capable of answering their questions. And I, I tell you to become a student of the other elements of the profession. I'd say the third thing that uh, I'd encourage folks to do is, is having, you know, enjoy solving problems. Um, it's what got me uh, interested in the profession in the beginning. You gotta, you gotta like being a problem solver, which means you, you gotta be comfortable confronting problems uh, and understanding the motivations for the people who have them, because uh, problem solving is what what we do better than pretty much any other organization. And I say better because the variables in our work are often... You're talking about iRobot or HR? HR. Okay. The, the variables in our work, our, uh, HR's work, uh, really are about people. And people don't look like spreadsheets. Uh, yeah. They, they, and so every... There's nothing more complex. It's, nothing, it's not only complex, it's, it's the same issue is going to have different variables uh, every time because of the pe- because of the differences of people involved and that's both that's both the, the, the great part of the job is the joy of the job it, it's also the competency that you have to bring which is why I say problem solving uh, whether you have a, a problem solving model that you like or, or emphasis in your career uh, understanding ways in which issues are mediated spend time to understand it and then finally many folks like working with people uh, and I think that's great, and you definitely need to have that. But I take it a step further as a professional in HR. It's, it, I understand that the uh, one of the best courses I took early in my career was an influencing skills course that talked about that helped me bring together the elements of my interpersonal abilities to help understand how I could influence with different strategies at different times. And I, I'd say that you know. Understanding what your interpersonal strengths are and what your weaknesses are, and refining those weaknesses so that you have a, you know, a repertoire of responses from an interpersonal standpoint that help you be better at your work, is something I wish I had done earlier. Uh, so those are understand the business in which you're operating, understand your domain really well, uh, love problem solving, and, and think about it from a, a problem solving model standpoint and develop an interpersonal repertoire, including influencing skills that helps you execute your work. So that's, that's what I would tell you. And is that your answer to that other question about what would you write to your 30-year-old self, self about the influencing skills, or is there something else that comes to mind if you could get to your 30-year-old self a message? Well, it was only five years ago, so it's easy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, why is that so funny? I mean, uh, it's, um, uh, I was really impatient and probably pretty arrogant. And... Um, I would have told myself to be uh, more patient um, and uh, to learn from more people. I think the thing that I've learned in this career is that 
these jobs are really hard. Uh, and that, that difficulty doesn't change. Uh, matter of fact, in some ways, I think it increases. So the top jobs tend to be really hard jobs. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that the entry-level jobs aren't hard either. They are hard. It's a, it's a hard profession. It's not a, it's not a profession for the faint of heart. I mean, the skills I just, the things I just talked about have to fit on top of a sense of confidence that, that you can figure it out. You may not always have the answer, and rarely do you do I in the moment, but it's, I think that what I've learned, and, uh, what I would say to that person is reach out. Um, what I would tell myself is I, I have, uh, I've had a mentor since then. I've had coaches since then. I take counsel from wherever I can get it. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm somewhat um, uh, disappointed that there's not a, a distinct expertise, a set of a distinct segment of the coaching market that's focused on HR execs because mm-hmm. and HR people, because I, I do think the challenge is... I know that. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, because I do think that the challenges are unique. I used to think, and I, I have this, I, I work in different ways for about 20 CEOs. Uh, one of the things that's consistent about them is those are lonely jobs because right, there's not really many people to talk to as the head of HR in those jobs or the CEO the CEO job is that but way. also the HR well, job is that too. was the, that was the that's the insight jump I was making about the, right. the head of HR job um, is also a fairly lonely job and uh, that your peers are focused on other things right there's P&L there's, there's accounting there's finance there's uh, operations um, and so you know, the kind of challenges that we have in reconciling uh, policy or, uh, or you know, making a case for a need for a, a community in the company to, to you know, uh, add to the way accounting works, to add to the expense base uh, to enable this, the, the retention of talent requires some uh, intellect, some uh, logic, some cleverness, which are which are available, but not easy to talk about. Uh, you know, so I, I think there's, I think there's, I would, I would tell my 30 year old self uh, to be, be more patient, uh, to be more open, that the, the ideas that uh, feel so right and clear may, may have another perspective if you, if, you, if you kind of broaden your, your view. And don't be afraid to ask for help because uh, the successful, the most successful people I, I've had the joy of meeting a lot of really successful HR people, and that's probably the reason I love our profession. The, the most successful folks are the folks who aren't afraid of asking for help, and I think that's that's what I would tell my thirty-year-old self. Who have been some key influencers on you? That's a great question. I think uh, I try to learn from everybody. I try to learn from everything. Um, I think there have been people in my life. I had a I had a coach for ten years, which just basically said that I, I didn't learn the first year and he kept coming back to try to make sure I learned. Um, that really helped shape me professional than as an HR person. Uh, he imparted something, uh, a wisdom on me that I, I'll share, which is uh, for me as a young HR person who is prone to pro- perhaps um, uh, following the easier path uh, versus the harder path, he said to me, you know, there's an, there's an old Chinese wisdom that says if you uh, if you measure your success by the amount of praise or criticism you receive, your anxiety will be endless. Uh, and so 
I, so Barry was Barry Cohen. I still see it was a tremendous influence in my life. I've worked for a couple of CEOs uh, who've been huge influences in my life. Uh, three or four of them uh, helped me learn different things. Um, you know, Jim Manzi helped me understand that just because it's been this way doesn't mean it always needs to be this way. You have to have the courage and convictions. Uh, Kirk Arnold uh, taught me about the power of culture and the importance of talent in the execution of business strategies. Bob Weiler taught me that uh, to create a great workplace, you have to create great teams. Colin Angle, um, who I work for now, uh, I think his, you know, he's a entrepreneur CEO. He's been he's been in a different job every day of his 27 years at iRobot, and uh, he refuses. Uh, to take the easy path, even now when he'd ever right to. Um, he's, um, he sees uh, disagreements as, a, as the beginning of opportunity for innovation. Uh, he sees misunderstanding as a chance for clarity. He's fearless. So I, I think... Uh, well, that's been a theme of your career, really, right? Yeah, I think... It, I think you've been that person and been around those people. Yeah. And and which has helped me prepare for the situations. You know, I've had uh, I've been I found myself in some interesting places in my career. Privileged to have people like the folks I just rattled off for you uh, to you know be there for guides. Um, so those those are the, some of the key influences. All right, I got a couple silly questions. For Go you. yeah. What's the first thing you do when you get out of bed in the morning? Um, I, uh, I I exercise. I uh, I get up at four thirty. Four thirty and. Um, I stretch, I run a mile and a half, two miles, I lift a few weights, uh, then I get the kids up, breakfast on the table, dishwasher emptied, showered and off to work. Jeez, that is impressive. That's that's good advice, right? <laughs> I'm not sure if, See if I could take the it. fine line between, you know, <laughs> wisdom and lunacy, right? <laughs> what gives you energy, Russ? Uh, I get my energy. I, 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 this is going to sound trite, uh, but it's true for me. It's like I, I get so much energy from my work. I I, uh, I have been blessed to be in a profession that I love. I have uh, had the honor of working uh, for some incredible organizations. You know, my dad used to say you should pray for being lucky rather than good, and I feel like I've been lucky to have really had some unbelievably great assignments. Not easy, all. Uh, but great assignments I've I've learned from, and I get to I get to work with people. Some of the, uh, and I've got, and that's just energizing for me. I, you know, if I have a bad period of time, I go out, I run down to the engineering room where I take a, I go visit the, the team in, in Pasadena, or I go to London, and and that's where you can see the, how the work applies and where it has value. I I, I get I love the work. I, I love the profession, yeah. and uh, I've been really honored to be a part of it. Yeah, that comes through. Russ, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to talking soon. To the Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.